The following message is from the 2013 IBCD Spring Seminar, Moods and Medicine, Biblical Hope for Strugglers. I've run for 43 years of my life. I have run 30 miles a week, and I haven't been able to run much for about so four months now. And um, the reason why I'm wearing these funny black shoes is because if I do, I walk better. And right now, the arch in my right foot bothers me just a little bit, just a little, not a lot. And what really what I'd like to be doing is running. You know, I've done it for years, and I want to do it again. And I think that's what the issue of, of pain and discomfort comes down to, isn't it? It's, I hurt... I can't do what I want to do, and, you know. And you can and you can you can you can put where you hurt and what you can't do into that sentence um, for just about anybody. I, I want to enjoy life. I want to work. I want to raise children. I want to golf. I um, I want to cut grass. Not likely. Um, <laughs> I want to be able to bend over and tie my shoes. Um, now, there, there really are about four problems that this presents to doctors. Um, and the, the problems are due to the, the way the patient population falls out. There are you know, four different categories. Um, the, the first pr- group are people who, they, they hurt. They have, they're dying with cancer. They have headaches that render them unable to do much of anything, migraine headaches. I've never had a migraine headache. I think I've had some squigglies before, but I have drunk my Starbucks too fast. Ever drink your Starbucks Frappuccino too fast and get a brain freeze? Well, what they tell me is that's what a migraine headache's like, except it doesn't go away. You know, it comes and it stays like that. Um... I take care of people with back pain, knee pain, hip pain from arthritis, and they struggle to be comfortable and continue to function in a world that they can't keep up with anymore because they hurt. That's one group. And if that was the only group I had, I I could figure this out. I could do it. Wouldn't be a big problem. But then I have interactions with patients who are in the grip of addiction to pain medication. You know, the same prescription that I write for the fellow whose knees are all worn out and can't stand on them anymore, um, or or the prescription that I write for the lady who has metastatic cancer, well, this person wants it too. Uh, Well, at least they did, and now they're addicted to it, and they are struggling. Some of them want to stop, um, and they are desperate. So that's the second group, people who are actively addicted and either do or don't want out. And then I have the third group who really like the drugs. They really like what they take. Y'all remember Rosemary Clooney? Yes. I can remember when she was in the movies with Bing Crosby and she was, you know, the tall willowy. And then later you you saw her in life and she wasn't willowy anymore. And the reason why she was tall and willowy was drugs, you know, to start with. And I can remember her being interviewed when she was sober and no longer taking, and she said, you know what? I really miss the drugs. (laughs) I mean, she meant it, you know, because she felt good when she was taking them. And, you know, that's that's the group that comes in, people who hope to 
convince me to give them more of the drug that they've come to need and enjoy. And pain isn't the driver anymore. It's the euphoria that comes with the Oxycontin or the, the Vicodin that has become the idol of their heart and drives them from doctor to doctor and drugstore to drugstore. There are some drugstores on the southwest side of the city that I live in that 65% of their business is narcotics. 65% of all the business they do is narcotics. And in Indianapolis, when they rob a drugstore, they don't want money. No, they want the oxy. They'll take the money, but they <laughs> might as well. But, uh, but what they really are looking for is the uh, Vicodin and the Oxycontin. And then there's another group that comes in hopes of getting me to write a prescription for eight Vicodin a day for a month. That's 240 because they can be sold for 10 bucks a pop on the street. And they are a strangely diverse group. I've read about grandmothers who are coached by drug dealers to go in and tell the doctor where they hurt and how they hurt. And then after they're on a certain set amount of drugs, they'll go back and complain about more. You know, it's like, I need more. And so then the doctor will write a a larger prescription and 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 the drug dealer coaches them. So those are the four different kinds of groups who show up in a doctor's office looking for pain medicine. And... That makes it kind of hard for doctors to get it right, to be honest with you, because most of us usually get really comfortable with doing something for somebody in one specific way, and that's the way we're going to do it for the, the most of what we do. And having to think back and forth four different ways about pain medicine is a challenge. But before I go on with this, I do need to say one thing, a couple of things, actually. There are two things that you really need to keep in mind when we're talking about pain medicine. First is this. Uh, pain and human suffering are real, period. They're real. A few years ago, I, I came home on a Friday evening, and um, I looked out into my front yard and saw a dandelion. And I walked out into the front yard, going to bend right over and yank that sucker right out of the ground, and I didn't realize that it was connected directly to China. <laughs> and I gave it a really good yank, and what went was my back. I probably ruptured a disc in my lower back because, you know, I did this, like that. And for three weeks, I grunted and groaned. I took my Medrol dose pack. I took my ibuprofen and wondered if I would get better. In fact, after a couple of weeks, I started making the calculation that at least if nothing changed, I could still go to work. I could still do my job, you know. At least I, I wouldn't have to be disabled or unable to work. But I tell you, I, I did hurt. It did hurt. Getting out of my, in, into my Honda Accord was a challenge. I bought a bigger car this time. <laughs> um, and I can tell you that there are people here today who hurt just as much or more as I did that day and who have not gotten better, who have not gotten better and they're not going to. They hurt. They hurt now, and they may hurt for the rest of their natural lives. I have a dear friend who's a pastor in Ohio, and he has struggled with migraine headaches for two solid years now. Two solid years. Just got better. Uh, he said that one of, his, uh, one of his friends or a deacon told him that the one cure was to go and uh, buy some uh, gin. He sent his wife. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and peppermint oil. And you were supposed to take the gin and the peppermint oil and rub it on your scalp. I don't think it worked. Um, But he is better now, uh, under the care of a physician. 
Um, but in the middle of his frappuccino frozen brain, screaming pain, he preached a sermon from Psalm 13. Psalm 13. And this is what he said. How long, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long, how long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God, enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death, and my enemy will say I have overcome him, and my, my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken, but I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. That's how my friend saw two years, solid years of migraine headaches. People really do hurt. Number two, and it's just as important. I can also tell you that while we can make most of that pain go away with oral pain medicine and other pain medicine options, those pain medicines carry with them a real cost. And it's not the money that you pay to buy them. They are habit-forming. If you take 8 to 12 Vicodin every day for a month, and you are most likely going to have some real struggles when you quit. I don't care who you are. It is not a question of character. One of the great myths that exists in American medicine today is the idea of an addictive personality. There are those who, if you take the Vicodin, you become an addict. And then there's us who can take those 8 to 12 Vicodin every day. And, you know, it just doesn't seem to get a grip on us at all. We never suffer withdrawal when they run out. And that is nonsense. You take 12 Vicodin a day for 30 days. When you quit, you're going to feel like it you will have withdrawal effects. If a medicine has effects that are beneficial and side effects that are not, then people who take them generally will get both. So, as we consider helping people with pain, I I would always caution you to remember that before you try to help people, always make sure you are. Seriously. (laughs) You know, sort of like helping the people in Haiti. We've been spending millions of dollars charitably trying to help the people of Haiti for generations. And they are no better off today than they were a hundred years ago. You just have to go down and look. But you go across the line in the Dominican Republic, and they are in no way nearly as much trouble as the folks are in Haiti. And so I, you know, I look at that and I go, before you go down and help people, make sure you are going to help them, really, when it's all said and done. And so I would say that with pain medicine. Before you say to help people with pain medication, make sure that when it's all over with, you will have helped them. It ought to be with great compassion. Yes, compassion. And great concern and great caution that we write people prescriptions for medicine that can have life-changing, personality-altering side effects that come with the pain relief. I don't know how to caution you any more than that. Now, you all remember all those nasty stories about how we Americans are terrible people and that our 4% of the world's population consumes 80 
No, 25% of all the world's resources. You've heard those things, haven't you? Yes, we, we burn all the gas, all the oil, you know, so on and so forth, use all the diamonds, eat all the food, and we are bad people because of it. That's 4% of the world's population and 25% of the world's resources. I can tell you that right now, our 4% of the world's population consumes 80% of all Vicodin and Oxycontin, period. I read once that we manufacture and sell enough Vicodin in the United States right now to give every man, woman, child, baby, infant, 65 of them a year, right now, in this country, right now at this moment. And somehow or another, I can't imagine that we have 80% of all the world's pain. If, you know, I, it's an incredible statistic. How in the world did we get to this? It surely wasn't that way when I graduated from medical school. Of course, that was a while ago. Ah, well, wait a second here. Yes, I can tell you that since 1990, education on this subject has been aimed at the idea of making people pain-free. Period. That has become the goal. It starts with how physicians and nurses are being educated and trained to care for pain. When I went through medical school... I can remember a guy sitting down and telling me, look, the state of Indiana and the federal government are going to give you a license. They're going to give you a number, and you're going to have the responsibility and the privilege of writing people prescriptions for narcotics. Don't make people into addicts. That's what he told me. Um, I can tell you that that has been lost. You know, you know, that is not being talked about today in Education, although it is more and more, I think the FDA now has realized that um, we are awash a, a in an epidemic of uh, prescription narcotic uh, abuse and addiction because they are calling for new physician education <laughs> on prescribing narcotics. You know, sort of like the FDA has woke up and realized, has awakened to realize that there is a problem. It falls under the dictum of primum notare. You know, primum non notare. First, do no harm. You know, before you write a prescription and you're going to help somebody and do something for them, make sure that what you do will not harm them. Period. And if you can't do anything that won't harm them, then don't do anything. Yes, don't do anything. That's that was with Hippocrates a long time ago. I can tell you that oxycontin sales in the United States. Well, it'll go backwards. There, now it'll go forwards. Oxycontin sales have increased eight times from 1997 to 2006. Um, and the reason why is because the uh, manufacturer vigorously uh, uh, promoted it to uh, physicians and nurses. Um, actually, they paid for uh, continuing medical education for doctors and nurses so that we, they could educate us and tell us that it should be our primary goal to see to it that no one ever Hurts that their pain number, their smiley face number is zero. Um, the only problem, of course, is that OxyContin is proven to be one of the most addictive over-the-counter medications that has ever been manufactured in the United States at any time. You, when you look at twelfth um, grade students, fifteen percent of them will admit to the fact that they've taken Vicodin or OxyContin that didn't belong to them. In other words, they took it from their uh, parents or their grandparents or one of their friends got it for them. And what does that mean? If 15% of the high school population will admit to have taken Vicodin, what do you think that really means? 
<laughs> you know, who knows how many it is? Used to be when I, was, I remember when I was an intern, the old dictum was, was when you ask an alcoholic how much they drank and they told you a pint, you multiplied it times four. <laughs> yes. And that was probably going to be closer to the truth as to what they were drinking. They tend to minimize what they're doing. I suspect that high school students may do the same. So I would think that that probably is the tip, the tip of the iceberg. I know that in e- emergency rooms, Around the country, the, um, most of the overdoses, and in my county, in Hendricks County in Indiana, um, almost all the overdoses among teenagers were for prescription medicine. They are not for uh, um, medicine, uh, drugs obtained on, on the street. Um, and I remember talking to a guy who was running a drug center in Atlanta, and he said that the um, that all of their new cases of addiction were prescription addiction. Uh, they weren't they weren't seeing people who were addicted to to heroin. Now, in essence, the uh, more that we write these drugs, the more people get addicted. Uh, the other one that's coming up now is the ADHD drug Adderall. Um, it is showing up in overdoses, showing up in emergency rooms. Same kind of problem. And the more we write for it, the more, more overdoses and addiction problems that we struggle with. All right, so why? Why has this happened? Why all of a sudden is something which ought to be good, used in moderation, used when needed, has suddenly become a, uh, an epidemic? Well, the first reason is because people hurt. That's true, they do. And then uh, the next reason is that we have an aging population. It's my generation again. Yes. My generation were the ones who burnt their draft cards, their bras, and their marriage licenses, right? Yeah, yeah, all at the same time. <laughs> and we're still here. And we're the ones who drive those RVs with a sign on them that says, I'm, tr- I'm spending my children's inheritance. Little self-interest, just a bit. Yes. And, and we're getting older. Yes. <laughs> And our feet hurt. (laughs) And and somehow or another, we got uh, apprised of the idea a long time ago that that was just sort of outrageous and it shouldn't happen to us. Yes, aging comes with more aches and pains and chronic illnesses. And then, of course, we have amazing access to health care. At least we have had. And, um, And then a world of prescription drug coverage. I mean... There's no place on the face of the earth where you can get more prescription drugs less expensively than right here in, in the United States. Vicodin here is cheap. 36 cents a pill in some places in the country. A dollar, I think, at a max. With that, you begin to understand why we're struggling the way we are. Um, and you understand the calculation that the government's making right now. Which would they rather give you? The uh, $1,000 or $2,000 a month arthritis drug you know, the one that, like, Phil Mickelson gets? Uh, uh, or, or would they rather give you 50 bucks worth of Vicodin? Think about it. I, I think, in fact, the president was quoted saying that. The, um, it was about the lady who asked if her mother, who was 98, could get a pacemaker, and he said, you know, sometimes we just have to send people home with some pills. That was exactly what he said. A quote. So... And then, of course, our people are suffering from a decline in physical fitness. Something about computer games, Twinkies, television, that kind of thing. I mean, there's no room missing it that Americans are broadening their horizons. No. And the outfall is in our knees. 
and our feet and our hips. As you go from here to your knees, to your ankles, and to your feet, it is pounds per square inch, a remarkable increase. So much so that the average person who struggles with knee pain, if they could just lose 10 or 20 pounds, their knees would feel enormously better. And that's because it's, it's a small spot down here. You know, the pads are, are not very large. So we have a declining physical conditioning for our population. Then uh, medical education uh, currently is, uh, for providers, is not emphasized addiction or side effect problems for medication. My friend with migraine headaches took um, Topamax for a while. Uh, but I don't think the doctor bothered to tell him about the, uh, the part about Topamax for migraine headaches where you can't remember words. Yeah, it, it actually does work for migraine headaches, but for some people the real problem is is that they can't remember things. It affects their memory. And, of course, for a, he's, you know, verbal. <laughs> you know, it's like a, a pastor who can't remember words is like a doctor who can't remember doses. What can I say? Um, so, a, a lack of emphasis on the downside of taking medicine. And then, of course, we are losing our generational societal bias against drug use and medication use. Uh, we have rising demands for the legalization of marijuana. Um, I was in Washington State. They're, they're, they're legalizing it there in Colorado. Um, pushes all across the country to legalize and tax uh, the sale and use of marijuana. It's going to be a disaster. It is a disaster. Uh, it's a disaster when you talk to the kid who's been in the uh, psychiatric ward hallucinating after he was smoking two grams a day. Um, you know, the people think that marijuana is a simple recreational drug with no downside. That's baloney. Um, and quite frankly, uh, you're driving with them right now. You know, and it, to me, the, the greatest danger is the fact that we have people out on the interstate who don't smell like alcohol but who are impaired by smoke. Um, I've always wondered about that. You know, how can our society be so gut against smoking tobacco while at the same time promoting smoking marijuana? Doesn't that strike you as somehow ironic? Just does me. All right. Now, what do we, how do we treat people with, for, for pain? Um, well, the, our first line of defense is pharmacologic pills and potions. Uh, the ones that are the safest are aspirin, Tylenol, NSAIDs, and the uh, COX-2 inhibitors, Celebrex. They carry very little addiction. They have side effects. All medicine is poison, period. Uh, old doc told me that. All medicine is poison. Take the smallest dose that you can for the shortest duration that you can for the maximum benefit. And he also said that if you ever take anything and you actually think it, wor- it works, at some point you ought to be willing to stop it and see if it really did. Again, you know, things related in time are not always related by cause. So, the least harmful things are, are those. Then, the next, uh, the next line is tramadol and tapentadol. Tramadol is a, an opioid-like medication, which is not an opioid, it, it, which opio- opioids are narcotics, all right? That's what opioids are. And, you know, if I say something and it's just buzzing and I'm going too fast and the word doesn't mean anything, would you raise your hand? Uh, that, that would help. I, you know, it's like if you need a definition as to what I'm saying, raise your hand for me or yell or grumble or anything. Um, so tramadol is not a nearly as much of a problem for addiction as is Vicodin, and it does offer some pain relief. It is uh, a derivative of uh, an antidepressant um, and they don't produce euphoria. 
That's the issue. You know, the trouble that you get into is when you take medicines that actually make you feel really good. Then we come to the opioids. Long list. These are all the narcotics. Vicodin is the favorite. Um, I can remember giving my son Vicodin for, uh, he had a dislocating kneecap. And uh, he, he had popped it out, and I walked out on the soccer field, grabbed his foot, put my thumb beside his kneecap, and straightened his leg out and popped it back in. And all the boys on the bench fainted. <laughs> no, it didn't happen that way. But, uh, you know, it was close anyway. And I took him to the ortho guy, and he wrote him a script for Viking, and we took him home, and in the morning we asked him what he wanted to eat, and he said, pizza. So we gave him pizza. Came back at noon and said, well, what would you like for lunch? What do you think he wanted? Pizza, yes. And we came back at dinner, and he wanted pizza. And I decided, I don't think he can remember what he ate the last two times. And at that point, he was on ibuprofen instead of a Vicodin. Um, so it's the Vicodins, the, all the narcotics, the whole list. Uh, hydrocodone is a problem is because it, 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 it brings with it significant euphoria. It makes you feel like a king. It makes you feel like you can do things you can't. I had a cousin who was addicted to it, and he, uh, he would take it and go work and ignore the fact that his knees were wearing out and that he felt bad because he felt euphoric. You know, he was, he was wearing his body out but covering it up with Vicodin. Um, then, after that, are uh, muscle relaxers like Xanaflex and Clonidine. There are antidepressants. Uh, and this is probably a unique use for antidepressants that I, I endorse. It is, it's the use of things like Elevil for diabetic neuropathies, you know, the burning feet and that kind of thing, um, and um, Cymbalta and Savella for um, peripheral neuropathies um, actually work reasonably well. Now, understand this, they do have a downside. Uh, in the same sense that Vicodin has withdrawal effects, stopping Cymbalta abruptly is a difficult thing. There's significant withdrawal uh, symptoms with it, and there are personality changes that uh, go along with taking it. So, but there are personality changes that go along with taking Vicodin. You know, I mean, they don't know it, but they sure are there, and the same thing for methadone. So the antidepressants get used. Then there are the anti-epileptic bl- drugs, like gabapentin, neurontin. Neurontin is used for peripheral neuropathies, and Lyrica. Lyrica is more troublesome because it has a higher potential for abuse. It's a controlled substance, whereas Neurontin isn't. And I, I'm very uh, hesitant to write prescriptions for it. I, I, you know, it's like I, would, I, I reserve it for folks who have peripheral diabetic neuropathies who won't get better with Neurontin. And uh, it, does, it is helpful for that. Then there are other muscle relaxers like Flexerel. It's a derivative. It too comes out of the SSRI derivative family. Medicines like ketamine. Any, any of you watch House? Yeah, every once in a while I fall into it too. I tell you, I, you know, there he is, the role model for physicians in America. <laughs> you know, you know uh, if I acted like him, I couldn't keep a job for 15 minutes. Um, it can only happen on television, where a guy who's addicted to Vicodin and is mean and nasty all the time, which, uh, you know, if you've dealt with people who are addicts, they are not uh, the pleasantest people on the face of the earth to deal with. Um, and, but in one episode, the reason why he takes all that medicine is because he almost lost his leg and he gimps around with the cane, you know, and um, they gave him ketamine. 
And ketamine made his pain go away, and then for the rest of the hour, he was running. And of course, and then at the end of the hour, it wore off. <laughs> he was back to being mean, nasty, taking Vicodin and walking with his cane. Um, so ketamine is used uh, for uh, pain relief as well. Also falling into that are, is dextromethorphan. And, and, and the reason why I mention that is because it's abused. Dextromethorphan is being abused by high schoolers and by uh, college-age students. And it causes them to, and can cause them to be psychotic and hallucinate. Then uh, there are the topicals, which are not very dangerous, the capsations, and then topical non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Those are useful as well. Then, moving out of medicine, we move to physical therapy. I like physical therapy. The reason why I like physical therapy is it has no side effects. It's not addictive. The only problem is it costs money. Uh, but uh, generally, uh, people who go to physical therapy, like for back pain and things like that, do far better than people who simply take medicine. It's like, go do your stretches. Go do your muscle strengthening. Acupuncture, people ask me about acupuncture, and I really don't have a one way or another thing to say about it uh, because the amount that it is supposed to help people falls into the same uh, range of improvement as does placebo effect. You know, they, they'll, they will make people 35 to 55 percent, 30 to 50 percent of the people who go to acupuncture would, would say that they get better. But then it could very well be that 35 percent or over half of what is found in acupuncture is due to the idea that I go down, somebody tells me I'm going to get better, and they stick a needle in me, and it hurts a little bit. Um, but again, it has a very low downside as long as the person uses needles that are uh, sterilized, you know, and that you're not going to be at risk for getting in, uh, bloodborne infectious diseases as a result. Um, TENS units, that's where they uh, put the electrodes on you and it convinces your body's nerves that you don't hurt. Uh, useful um, in people who are struggling with back pain. Then uh, there's behavioral medicine counseling. Uh, that is where we um, uh, send people to talk to counselors uh, to to view how their uh, to view their pain differently, sort of someplace where we might fit in. And then there are neuromodulators. My uh, daughter-in-law works for St. Jude Medical, and right now they make brain uh, deep brain uh, stimulators uh, that are used for uh, migraine headaches, depression, deep brain stimulators that are used for back pain. Um, and I would say that if I was going to have somebody put a stimulator in my head, I'd want to be really miserable. I, I mean, you, you know, this, these are very, this is very aggressive. This is not a small consequence issue. And you have to be nearly debilitated to want to do it. Uh, epidural steroid anesthesia is a great thing. At least it was until somebody um, put fungus in the steroid and, and, 100, and 150 people died. Now nobody wants to do it. Uh, but I can tell you this, once they get the issue of the supplier taken care of and somebody goes to prison, maybe, um, the um, uh, epidural steroid injections are really a whole lot better than having your back operated on. Uh, you know, my 15-year-old nephew ruptured a disc in his back. He had an epidural. His pain went away, and he has not had trouble since. And that was a whole lot better for him than having, a, uh, having his uh, back operated on. Um, all right, moving on. Then there's surgery to fix things. Uh, uh, correct the anatomic defect. Take the disc out. And uh, as a dead last resort, kill the nerves surgically that carry the pain medicine. That's called, or pain s symptoms. And that's called a rhizotomy. Now, how do we look at pain in medicine? Um, 
Well, there are two classes, there are three classes of pain that we look at in medicine. The first is what we call neuropathic. That means that it is caused by damaged nerves, and that's diabetic neuropathies and things like shingles and post-herpetic neuralgia. The shing- after you get the shingles, you have pains. In older people, it can go on forever. And uh, things like trigeminal neuralgia, the, you know, the cold air blows on your face and you have this terrible pain. Uh, uh, th- that's neuropathic pain. There is no susceptive pain, which means it's pain due to a damaged structure. Your gallbladder has gallstones in it. And the only way to fix it and to keep you from every time you eating a greasy cheeseburger from having a, an amazing right upper quadrant abdominal pain attack is to take your gallbladder out. And then we classify pain as either chronic or acute. All right? So it's pain that's uh, caused by damaged nerves, pain caused to bad structure, and it's either chronic or acute. So what do we like to do in medicine? We like to find the cause and fix it as opposed to just covering it up and treating it. At least I, I would say it's in my view of medicine, it's never a goal simply to cover up medicine or rather to cover up pain with medicine. Most nociceptive pain falls into the category of, of things that we can fix. Generally speaking, if you have bad knees, we can replace them. And I would rather replace their knees than put you on uh, Vicodin, uh, 16 of them a day. I think the complications from that in the long term will be far more dangerous to you than having your knees replaced. And if you have your knees replaced, you'll rise up in six months and call us blessed most of the time because you'll get around much better. Um, uh, Let's see here now. Then, the next thing I'd say about it is never treat undiagnosed pain with narcotics. In my estimation, if the physician can't tell you why you hurt, he should not be handing you a, pr- a prescription for a medicine that will make the hurt go away. You know, it's, it's C.S. Lewis said, uh, you know, pain is useful. <laughs> it's God's megaphone. He talks to us through it. And pain in our bodies is a useful thing. It tells us that there's something wrong, and we should be finding out what's wrong, not simply covering it up. Once a cause is known, then as far as I'm concerned, I'd start with the least troublesome form of, of, of care. And we've already gone through the list. It starts out with the non-narcotics. It goes to the uh, NSAIDs and, the, uh, and then to tramadol in those, in, in those first two steps. And then the third step, you would go to, you'd go to the narcotics. Pain that can't go away that you know why. Um, let's say the person has uh, a cancer. And their cancer is never going away, and they're just going to simply get worse over time. Then, um, then you have a, a good reason to write for the medication. You know what the outcome is going to be eventually, and and then you're going to treat them and treat them to where that they are uh, to to, and, uh, to where they are comfortable. If you're talking about pain for things like chronic uh, low back pain, I, you know I view that or migraine headaches. There, that's it. You know, pain, uh, chronic uh, narcotic medication for migraine headaches is is really a danger. You know, it always, I've always seen it to be that way. Uh, as I treated people who would come into the emergency room and uh, their doctor said I should give them 150 milligrams of Demerol and 25 of Phenergan, and they were going to come back in two or three hours and get another dose. And those are large doses of medication. And um, so you would look, you would look at the, the kind of pain that it is and, um, and make your decision as to whether or not you wanted to, to use narcotics. The, um, I would tell you that anything that requires anything more of a short-term nature for narcotic use is going to require, in most people, pain contracts, urine drug screens, 
pre-screening for addiction and then a trip to the computer whenever you write a prescription for it. The trip to the computer guarantees that you're the only person who's writing the prescription. The urine drug screen guarantees that they're taking it. Again, we're back to the... It's, it's hard to understand. You know, it's the grandmother, the gray-haired grandmother who's in your office, and she's really there just to collect the prescription so that she can sell it. And so you make her give you a urine, and you screen it, and you make sure that the metabolite from the medicine is in her urine, meaning that she took it. All right. Um, there. Now, you wonder why his picture's in this, don't you? Do you know who that is? Yeah, Norman Schwarzkopf. He just died a week, couple weeks ago. And I can tell you that he had a profound effect on my view of writing pain pills. And it's kind of an odd thing. Uh, and, and, and where it came out of was his uh, rules for going to war. He had two, two solid rules before going into combat. And the first rule was know when you're coming back before you go. If you don't know when you're coming back, don't go. That was what he said. And then he said, if you do go, take overwhelming force. You know, don't take half an army. Take twice an army. Squash them. And then so that you come back sooner. And from that, I decided that was how I was going to do pain medicine. Seriously. The, um, the, the first rule, know when you're coming back. That is, know when you're going to not write this prescription again. When are you planning on stopping? And I can tell you that if you do not have a plan to stop, you shouldn't start. Because eventually what you're talking about is that you've committed that patient to taking an addictive substance perhaps for the rest of their life. And you've committed yourself to being willing to write it for the rest of your life with all kinds of untoward outcomes attached to it. So that's my my first rule. And the second rule is if you're going to write it, give them enough. You know, it's like it, 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 if, if you're treating someone who has cancer, make sure they're comfortable. If they have a broken bone, make sure they're comfortable. If they have a burn, make sure they're comfortable. Don't give them half of what they need. Give them enough to make the pain go, go away. All right, now, moving on. Now, what do I say about this biblically? Because that's what you guys have been waiting on for a really long time, isn't it? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and let's look there. When's this supposed to end? 4.30. Good. I'm fine. All right. Yeah, I lost my list. I'm standing up here going, hmm, I wonder when I'm supposed to be done. That was a, a real qualm of conscience answer, wasn't it? Some of you were probably going, 4.15. No. Okay, 13. All right. Oh. I'm in 2 Corinthians. I'm sorry. Now I'm in 1 Corinthians. All right. Here's what I think. There's no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. God is faithful will not allow you to be tested above what you're able, but will with the test provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved brethren, flee from idolatry. That's a very important statement when it comes to pain medicine. Verse 15, I speak to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup a blessing that we bless, a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread we break, a sharing in the blood of Christ? Once again, we're talking about meat and idols and demons and and sacrifices, aren't we? Same thing as in Romans 14. Since there is one bread, we who are of our one body, for we all partake of the one bread, look 
at the nation Israel are not those who eat of the sacrifice of sharers in the altar. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to, is a thing sacrificed to idols anything, or that the idol is anything? No, but I say the things which the Gentiles sacrifice. They sacrifice to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? And then, verse 23, important verse. All things are lawful. Mm, Christian liberty, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. And here is another good part. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. All right. What do I get out of that? All right. Well, principles. First, whether we choose to take pain medication or not, it ought to be decided based on what is going to glorify God, shouldn't it? Or should it be decided by how we hurt? No, I don't think so. I think the primary drive in whether we take pain medicine or not ought to be, are we going to glorify God in the process of doing it? In essence, that's how we ought to be making all our decisions in our lives. I want to glorify God with my life more than I want to breathe. The decision to take pain medication, again, is in the arena of Christian liberty. All things are lawful. Not all things are profitable. Nowhere in the Scripture does it say whether we should be taking medicine to relieve short-term pain or chronic pain. The idea... Uh, really wasn't as much of a concern in New Testament times because they really didn't have anything much of this. That gives us liberty to do what we think we ought as long as we abide within the confines of Scripture. All right. I guess that's verse 14, isn't it? Yes, let me see here. So, no, one second. Wrong chapter. Therefore, my beloved brethren, flee from idolatry. We shouldn't be making it our primary goal. We shouldn't be making it our primary goal in life to be pain-free. If being pain-free becomes our primary goal, it becomes idolatry. Um, Instead, we need to turn that around and put honoring God first and then loving others. First, as Paul says down in verse 31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now also, Christian liberty is limited by how it affects other people. And that's what verse 24 talks about. No one should seek his own good, but the good of others. And I can tell you that the majority of people that I see in counseling who struggle with these pain medicines are usually there because their family can't put up with them anymore. And the reason why they can't put up with them anymore has to do with what they're doing in order to get the drug and how they act when they're taking it. When I I can remember going to the uh, Giants game um, in San Francisco with my cousin when he lived there. He's he's with the Lord now. And um, motorcycle accident. We always used to call them donor cycles in the ER. Yes, yeah. But um, I, I, he, was on, uh, he was on methadone because he had been on Vicodin. And if he took methadone, he didn't go buy Vicodin off the street. And so he was in a methadone treatment program. But I can tell you, it was, 
it was sort of like being with somebody that you were always afraid of what they were going to say or do next. And, and they were intoxicated. I, you know, I don't care if they say that eventually they become used to it or whatever. And, and we stood up to sing the national anthem, and my cousin starts singing. And it was sort of like you had a roaring drunk standing beside you yelling the national anthem, and everybody in the stands turned around to look. You know, I can remember playing golf with him once. We, you know, I had the whole family out on a golf course, and I knew where Jimmy was all the time because he could be two holes away and I could hear him. And he never understood that. And the reason why is because when they're on the medicine, they don't understand how they're acting. Everybody else does. You know, it's everybody else around them who's struggling with the way they act when they take the medicine. Then I think the the fifth thing that I think about all this is like verse 13. There's no test taken you but such as is common to man. Who said your knees weren't going to hurt? You know, why shouldn't my foot bother me? I've lived 62 years. I've run a long way. I mean, you know, I should be grateful. If I have to walk the rest of the way in, so be it. But, but that doesn't mean that I have a right to take medicine to be necessarily pain-free, does it? Particularly if my right to that impounds or falls upon other people. I really liked what Lewis, C.S. Lewis said about it when he was talking about Luke 9.23. And he said, What part of it didn't you get, more or less? This is not a direct quote, but when it says, take up your cross and follow me, what part of that didn't you think was going to include suffering? You know, you're picking up the instrument of execution. You know, it's sort of, you'd get the idea that, yes, maybe we should expect that we are going to have pain in this life. And the reason why we're going to have pain in this life has everything to do with what Paul said in Romans 5.12. What did he say? It was, you know, it's, wherefore as by one man sin entered the world and death by sin, so death passes upon all men, for all have sinned. Yes, it's, I always, always like to say, I get up in the morning and I look in the mirror and what do I see now? Wrinkles. Yes, those wrinkles didn't used to be there. When I was 20, there weren't any wrinkles. Whose fault is that? Eve's. No. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah. And Adam. Yeah, I mean... Let me correct myself. It's a good thing my wife's not here. I'd be sleeping on Jim Neuheiser's couch tonight, I suppose. <laughs> All right. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5. And what else can we say from a biblical viewpoint about whether we're going to make a choice to take medicine? Okay, it is a Romans 14 issue. I have Christian liberty. But what is going to hem my Christian liberty in? It's going to be hemmed in by how it affects other people. So, verse 15, Ephesians 5. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with and making melody in your hearts to the Lord always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. I read a fellow who said, don't tell me to be, to say my headache is good or that I should thank God for it. And I'm going, he was working out of another passage and I'm going, well, wait, wait a minute. That's exactly what it says, isn't it? Yes, always giving thanks for all things. Well, what, can, what do we gather from Ephesians chapter 5 about taking 
medicine. The first thing is to walk as a wise person, and you should understand what you're doing. That means you should sit down and have a conversation with your physician about what is the cost and the trouble associated with me taking this medicine, and then what's the benefit. So I was talking with one fellow. He outlined a treatment program that someone needed to do, and I said, and he said, and, it, and the medicine has a lot of side effects. And I said, yeah, but not taking it has a lot more side effects. I mean, in this person's case, if they didn't take that medicine, their life was going to come apart. They needed to take it in spite of, and it's that balance between the two that you need, when, you know, walking as a wise person that you need to talk with about your, doc, with your doctor, about the benefits and the potential for habituation. And then, how will the choice affect how you use your time? It was something that Doc Smith once said, Doc, Dr. Bob Smith, who, who mentored me, who, under, uh, who watched me counsel and, who, um, and, uh, and whom I watched counsel, uh, and a father in the Lord. And I can remember him once. He was talking about uh, someone who was thinking about getting married. And he, he always said that the, the way that you decided that you know, this couple had been married before, and they were both actively involved in church, really good people. Everybody thought that they ought to get married. Um, and so they came and sat down with Doc, and what Doc told them was this. The question that you really need to answer is, do you believe that you will be able to serve God better married than you can serve God single? If you can serve God better single, you should. <laughs> And if you can serve God better married, then you should get married. And of course they got married. What did we think they were going to do? But, but anyway, that's what I say about when it comes to taking medication or doing anything in medicine. Do you think that you're going to be able to serve God better when you do this than you would if you don't? And that ought to be one of the really strong guiding principles behind what you choose to do when it comes to medicine. Then... Uh, verse 18, we're not to be controlled or intoxicated by any substance, right? You know, I grew up in a teetotaling home. You know, we were, first we were Methodists, and that was, that was uh, John Wesley's big deal, you know? The, the Methodist book of discipline would throw you out of the church until about 1960 if you went to a cocktail party. Boom! <laughs> you know, that, that was just how much patience they had with it. And... Uh, then there was. Then, then I went to a Baptist church, and you know they thought all the same things about it. And then I learned to read Greek, and I came face to face with the notion that really what it's saying is that you, uh, you know we're not supposed to be drunk, right? Yes, it it, it, it does. I, you know, I can't honestly stand here and try to tell you that in the Greek it says that we shouldn't drink alcoholic beverages. Period. 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 But I can tell you, you shouldn't be. Drunk, can't I? Can't I? Absolutely. And if you can't drink one glass or one can and walk away from it and not be drunk, guess what I'm going to tell you? You shouldn't do it at all, should you? Exactly. Why? Because you do not wish to be controlled by a substance. You want to be controlled by what? Whom? Not what. I'll get thrown out of here for saying that. By whom? The Holy Spirit. Yes, that's that's who we're supposed to be controlled by, and that is exactly what I would tell you you ought to be thinking about when you're signing up to take medicine. You know, will this medicine come to control my life? If so, can't I just struggle on through? Yes. Uh, and, and that is a Christian liberty choice, but that was, is one of the parameters that you should put down beside yourself. 
And then we need to approach life with a heart of gratitude, even for aches and pains. Didn't get any amens for that, did I? Nobody thought that was funny. No, I, I can remember, I had a dear friend who um, uh, at one point had a building fall on him. It was a hurricane, not a hurricane, a tornado came through and uh, it knocked the building down that he was in. The building collapsed on him and broke his back. And I remember sitting with him in the hospital and he had been crocked in the head and every five minutes he would ask me the same question. Charlie, did I go in the hole? And then I would tell him, and then, you know, he would quiet down, and then five minutes later he would look up, and because he, he had amnesia from the head injury, and he would say, Charlie, did I go in the hole? After a couple hours of that, I wanted to take off one of my socks. <laughs> yes, and put it in his mouth. But anyway, because it was really tiresome. And I can remember talking to him about it a long time later, and he, he hurt. He still hurt. He had... You know, they put bolts and, 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 and nuts and every kind of thing in his back. And he still heard, and he said, Charlie, I am grateful for the pain. He says, you know why? He said, because I could be numb from the chin down right now. I am grateful for the pain. And then later he told me that, that he actually on that day was thinking about divorcing his wife and leaving her. And about that time, the building fell on him. <laughs> They're still married. (laughs) Message from God, I suppose, yes. So, we, we are supposed to be grateful for the things that God puts us in. Uh, because he intends to use them in a Romans 8, 28 and 29 sense in our lives to shape us and make us more like Christ. Now, for a moment, I have time. I have plenty of time. Case history. Uh, 55-year-old white female came to counseling, had been in counseling a couple of times, and was um, the reason why she was in counseling was because she had troublesome behavior. She had troublesome behavior at work. I am so sorry I didn't click through those slides, but here we are. We, she had troublesome behavior at work. Uh, she would get angry. Um, she would swing bes- between episodes of feeling okay, and then she would swing into a deeply dark, depressed mood. She mistreated people at work, at home, and sometimes at church. She had had a, a history of Vicodin addiction and abuse and had been in counseling before, and actually they thought she had really made good progress. Uh, she did have significant problems with uh, her knees were worn out, and she was a diabetic, and she had diabetic neuropathy. And so she had real pain when she would... I mean, watching her walk into counseling made me hurt. You know, because, I mean, it was, it was an effort. Walking for her was a real effort. Um, not long before they came to counseling, she had resumed uh, taking Vicodin without her husband's knowledge, but, and he knew. I mean, you know, it wasn't any mystery. He could watch her behavior. He watched her personality change and her behavior change, about like my cousin. And he confronted her, and she again stopped it, and then they came for counseling. And by the time I saw her, she was doing somewhat better off the medication, but she was still struggling. She was still struggling with the mood and the anger. Uh, She was at that time on tramadol, the non-narcotic drug that I told you about, and she was taking um, um, Neurontin, Neurontin for the uh, diabetic neuropathy. 
And we worked through all the routine you know, counseling steps that you would take with anybody like that. I talked to her about her motive, about her salvation. We discussed anger and worry and suffering. Spent a lot of time in John chapter 11, which she did find comforting. And, um, and the fact that Jesus knew about her problem. Um, then, and you know, probably counseled with her for about 12 weeks or so. And she would do better. And then she had a really, uh, you know, a bad weekend. And they came back to counseling. And, you know, I got curious. I got curious about tramadol, and I got curious about um, the uh, Neurontin. And I went and read about tramadol and, you know, what tramadol said. It said it could do those things, that they could have personality changes with it. And so I, uh, when I told her that, she listened and she said, well, I'm going to stop both of them. And I had kind of suggested that she continue to take the Neurontin but stop the Tramadol. And, um, and she stopped them both but then went back on the Neurontin because the diabetic neuropathy problem just got really huge when she wasn't on it. But when she stopped taking the Tramadol, her, um, her mood improved. And indeed, it was the tramadol that made her that was making her hurt. But then we were left with this dilemma: she had terrible knees. I mean, you know, she was barely getting by taking tramadol. And what it finally came down to was, uh, and she feared having surgery because she'd already had some orthopedic surgery, and the guy, whoever did the surgery, had messed a nerve up in her leg, and uh, so she really didn't, she was just scared to death to have the surgery. And then, of course, if she had the surgery, she was going to have to go back on what? Yeah, narcotics. I mean, there is no way you're going to get your knees replaced and not make a trip through, you know, narco land. It's just not really possible. And, and nor would you want to, trust me. And so that was the dilemma. What was she going to do? Well, you know what? I sat down with her and I, we talked about Doc Smith. Yeah, I, I, I said, I, I think these, this is the answer to your question. You know, can you serve God better gimping around on these knees like you are or could you serve God better if you had them replaced? And she went home, thought about it for a good while. And then she signed up and had the surgery and, the sur- and got remarkably better. And to this, to this day is on Neurontin and uh, no other pain medicine. Had to uh, uh, use narcotics during and uh, post, pre- and po- you know, post-op and then had to use Vicodin. And uh, everybody who knew her and loved her knew it and uh, upfront about it. And when it was over, it was over. And she struggled, you know, just like you would expect that she would struggle, like you'd expect anybody to struggle who took it and liked it. And uh, but by the time I saw her back after the knee surgery, she was actually doing fairly well. And the the guiding principle for her choice about medication and what she was going to do with her knees was, well, was, you know, it was. Um, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It was Doc Smith. Can I serve God better with, um, with having the pain or can I serve God better if I had the surgery? And that's how she made her choice. All right, that's pain medicine. Now it's question time. And we have five minutes, yes. Uh, steroids don't get used chronically for pain. They might get used short-term. I took a Medrol dose pack, which is a steroid dose pack. The reason why they don't get used long-term is... Uh, very much is because they have significant, tremendous side effects. You know, and there are lots of reasons why I use it, but the problems have to be less, greater than the side effects. Uh, Tylenol, um, as long as you don't take uh, more than eight a day of the regular ones, probably isn't going to affect your liver much. The real issue with Tylenol and the reason why it got to be a big deal was Vicodin. And you have to understand that the pro- and, and the reason why you started seeing Vicodin. Uh, 
uh, like uh, 10, one, 10 500s, you know, 10 milligrams of Vicodin and 500 milligrams of, amph- of uh, acetaminophen was because what would happen on the 5 500s or the 325 Tylenol and 5 of, of Vicodin is that people would be taking 24 or 36 of them a day. And so in order to get it, the, you know, as they became uh, more uh, accustomed to the Vicodin, they, had to increase their, they would increase their dose and they would reach levels of Tylenol that would kill your liver. Uh, outside of that, though, you know, judiciously lose Tylenol is not a big deal. And when I said NSAIDs, I was talking about um, ibuprofen. Ibuprofen is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. So is naproxen. Answer your question? Uh, yeah, all medicines are poison. Um, uh, problems with heart, clots, things like that. Um, but, again, the, um, the risks of using it uh, for some people are smaller than the benefits, which is, uh, you know, relief of pain and discomfort. My big problem with taking naproxen was uh, GI bleeding. I ended up getting a colonoscopy and uh, being in the hospital overnight from GI bleeding because I took naproxen. Yes? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, um, I, uh, <clears throat> unless somebody mistakes the side effects of taking amphetamines and Adderall for uh, bipolar disorder... Uh, but no, I don't think that someone who has ADHD is any more likely to have bipolar disorder. No, I don't think so. I think the real problem is what medication they take. You have a question. <laughs> See, how can I respond to this in a... What'd you say? Oh, uh, the, the counselee comes in and they say that... Um, I need to take marijuana. I'd rather take a natural substance. It's legal now. Since it's legal and recreational, um, can I take it? And I mean, yeah, if it's legal and recreational, do I think you're smart? No. If you look at IQs on people who smoke marijuana for 10 or 15 years and you IQ them at the beginning and you IQ them at the end, do you know what you find? They're dumber. Yes. They are. That's why it's dumb and dumber. Yes. So do I think it's a good idea for people to smoke marijuana? No. Will I ever think it's a good idea for them to to use an addictive, mind-altering substance? The answer is no. Do I think it's a Christian liberty issue? Only if you have a really strange view of Christian liberty. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's taking Christian liberty out the door and in some place where it was not intended to go. I, I cannot say, you know, I, the incidence of schizophrenia among p- young people who use uh, marijuana is higher. Um, there, I, I can think of nothing good to say about smoking pot, period. So... You're welcome. I was glad to do that. I think he, the guy back there, I think, yes. And, and I think at that point we're going to have to finish because it's 4.30. Yes. Well, ah, I thought I was going to get out of here without answering that. <laughs> Fibromyalgia is an interesting thing. And really it falls into that conundrum that I've been talking about all day about having pathology in order to say what you have. And the real problem with fibromyalgia is, one, people do hurt. They hurt. They tell me they hurt. They hurt. I, there's no way I can tell them that they don't. Now, the next problem is, is that there's no pathology that underlies it. Uh, it is simply a description of how people hurt. 
Uh, it used to be a rheumatologic disorder, and some rheumatologists still hang on to it, but most of them have discarded it, and now they call it a disorder of pain perception, which is unmeasurable and unprovable. And so then I go to that and I say, well, you know, I would like to help this person be as comfortable as I can without causing them grief, which is not going to include controlled substances and narcotics. Uh, you know, that, that, is, that is where, you know, I will, I will absolutely draw the line. Uh, they, the medicines like Civella and Cymbalta seem to help, and, um, and Tramadol seems to help. I, um, I don't discount the fact that they hurt, but I don't want to participate in making someone into, or potentially uh, having someone become an addict when I cannot say what in the world is exactly wrong with them. And please, if you have fibromyalgia, please do not think that I'm saying that you do not hurt or that you don't have a problem. I'm just saying that there is nobody on the face of the earth today who can tell you why it is happening. And when you have that in medicine and you're making guesses, that's when we have generally made the worst kind of care available to people. It's based on what we think it might be, not what we think it is. And it is. I'm sorry, 4.30. Copyright 2013, IBCD, All Rights Reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.